Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. And today, it's the podcast that's always up to speed with motion pictures. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me today, the one, the only, straight out of Brooklyn, Mr. Seth Whiteberg. We are here to talk about the 2013 Hollywood picture, Rush, directed by Ron Howard. But before we get started, Seth, my friend, how the heck are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm so excited to... uh dive back into this. It wasn't actually long ago that I saw this for the first time. It was only a, a few years ago, so it was fun to fun to dip back in. I have to say, actually, the I, I was fi- trying to figure out when I was going to see this um, and watch it again and fit it in, and um, I was at a, a drinks thing on... I was planning on watching on Tuesday night, but I was at a drinks thing on Monday night, like a going away for somebody, and had a couple beers in me, might have had you know, another substance that's legal in the state of New York now uh, in me, whatever. And I figured, oh, th- this is actually exactly when James Hunt would want me to watch this movie, um, which is what I did. I fell asleep half <laughs> halfway through and finished it on Tuesday. So um, I'm, I'm fired up. I got it fresh on the brain, ready to go. Let's do this thing. Well, let's do this. Given that this is Movie Club, we'll create a new tradition. And before you and I dive into this film, let's listen to the trailer. a lie that all drivers tell themselves. Death is something that happens to other people. And that's how you find the courage to get in the car in the first place. But more powerful than fear itself is the will to win. It's Nicky Lauda. He's just been signed by Ferrari. The showdown between you and Nicky is all anyone wants to see. Why don't they make it safer? Risk of death turns people on. Okay, I thought that was a great place to start playing that trailer. I think the film has a fantastic score, and you got a little got a little bit of the sense of the the vibe. And if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm actually going to encourage you right now to hit pause on this podcast and not return to this podcast until you've seen the film because I think you'll probably enjoy our conversation much much more if you do that so Seth I'm going to kick it over to you because you posed a bunch of really great questions in our whatsapp chat a little while ago and one of them was this and I'm going to read out your question your statement here what a fun movie also is this a good movie at all my friend your take on Rush okay so it's unquestionably a fun movie, right? Like, like I said, I had just finished Drive to Survive when I when I first and I was just like looking for any Formula One content, so I gobbled it up. 
it, it takes you to like such a great time and place in uh, obviously just like world history. It's so interesting, but especially Formula One history. We're going to talk more about, I think, the 1970s and the sport later. And and you get immersed in that. You get immersed in that with the the color tone of the, of the movie is kind of like grainy and gritty. The cinematography is incredible. It's a Hans Zimmer soundtrack. It's um, inc- great acting performances from Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl. Um, so all that stuff makes it fun. The racing is fun. Obviously, the story of what happened in 1976 is an incredible story in the sport. But the movie itself as a movie, I actually don't think is a very good movie. And I think part of the problem is it it in many ways reminds me of they're they're kind of not really a thing anymore, but when we were growing up, we had TV movies. And a lot of TV movies would be based on true stories. And movies based on true stories very easily can fall into a lot of the same pits and traps. Um, a, a lot of them have to do with the fact that like they're cheap. I mean, we're going to talk about the budget later. This was not a wildly expensive movie, and I feel like it kind of shows at times. Like Lord Hesketh, you know, who has um, James Hunt's first team and then moves them up to Formula One. When you read stories about what Hesketh was like when they got to Formula One, it was like transformative to the sport where like it, it turned into this like lavish thing and the champagne and the oysters and the pit lane and stuff. In this movie, it just kind of feels like here's this like one dude who's kind of like opening a bottle by himself and doing the stinky things. So, you didn't get that, but like you also just have to like cram in so much plot when it's a true story that I think you end up with these like weird jumps, you know, like the jump to, to Lauda's first championship is like, wait, okay, he's a world champion now, so I guess that's not really the stakes of this movie. What is this movie about? Um, there's there's tons of stuff in here that you would never do in 2023. The, I think maybe one of the worst parts of the movie is the, the women in this movie are essentially props. Um, now, <laughs> that, that that's not... That wasn't like a new thing in 2013. It was actually the, one of the oldest things. But, um, you know, like Susie Miller is in there. She meets him and falls in love with him. The second time we see her, she's watching him on TV. The third time we see him, they're getting a divorce. And the fourth time we see her, she's watching him on TV again. And that's it. <laughs> like, they, the only function they serve is to, like, inform those characters. And, like, e- even their marriages. Like, I get why they have to do it that way just for time. It was like they meet and then they're married. But again, that felt like a TV movie to me. The other thing, too, is like, uh, here's like a little uh, trick, hack, something to look for. You know the narration that pops up at the very end with Nikki Lauda? But there's not narration throughout the movie. It's just kind of there at the end. That is a terrible sign. More often than not, that is like what happens when like, you take a movie into testing and people leave and they're like, what happened? Or they're confused and you don't, you, you can't go shoot new stuff. So you just like send someone to a VO booth. I don't know if that's what happened here, but it, that felt shoddy to me. Even the name is bad. You, you know, like movie studios have um, like lists of titles of just things that they've trademarked um, because they think in the future it might be a cool name for a movie. Like funny story about that is like Charlie's Angels was making its sequel and they didn't want to call it Charlie's Angels 2. So that so John August, the screener, they were like literally just looking at these lists and one of the like the names they owned was Full Throttle. So they just called it Charlie's Angels Full Throttle just because it like sounded like a thing. Rush kind of sounds like that to me. So I don't know. I mean, we can talk about this more later, but like I made a TV show called Drunk History and, you know, one of, or, you know, Basically, what we were doing constantly on that is like finding stories. I was writing those stories, 
and and you're you're constantly going through this exercise of taking this huge swath of information and facts and then you're like trying to carve like a clean narrative line out of it and it's so hard to do when there's like certain things you have to hit when there's facts you can't bend um, and especially then you're trying to do it with two characters and you're kind of trying to tell their dynamic and their story it just ups the stakes of uh, like for the screenwriter so much so I don't know I think that like I really enjoy watching this movie, but I don't think you could hold it up next to a lot of other Ron Howard movies as being like a, a great movie. I get everything you're saying. And to be totally honest, I, I was expecting to disagree with a lot of it. I mean, ultimately, you're the expert and you're in the industry, but I can't help but align a, a lot of my impressions impressions with yours. That right off the jump, like right from the start, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I saw it in theaters in September of 2013, and I think I rewatched it four or five years ago. And then I rewatched it over the last couple of days because I, I wanted to get ready for this podcast. And truthfully, I wasn't I wasn't excited to rewatch it. I, I felt that I'd got enough out of it the first couple of times that to watch it again would be a chore. But from the minute I pressed pause, I, I was thoroughly engrossed. But at the same time, like you say, even as, as somebody that's not an expert and doesn't work in the industry, I felt myself picking away. So I, I know it sounds like I'm contradicting myself. Like a bad film, a mediocre film can still be thoroughly entertaining. And this was a thoroughly entertaining film. But I think to your point, it was constrained by a couple of things. One was the runtime was two hours and three minutes. And they were trying to cram in a story about the entire 1976 Formula One season, plus provide all of the context that builds up to that moment in time and and in history. And I think that's going to be a challenge. And you're right that if this movie was fiction, they could have crafted the they could have crafted the story in such a way that it's more compatible with the art of film. And they couldn't do that. That they they couldn't bend filmmaking to accommodate the story. So they kind of had to bend the other a little bit to do it. But all of that to say, I I still thought it was a thoroughly entertaining film. And I think it's a perfect segue into, into the next question. We can bounce back and forth. There's really no structure to this, but really to me, and, and I thought this even in the time back in 2013, which is how did this movie get made? And I don't know if, if it's appropriate to say it's a period piece, given that it's 1976, but it's, it's striking to me that this project ever got made that in 19 or in 2013 a film about the 1976 formula one world championship got made and i think it's important to provide a little bit of contextualization that in hollywood at the time you said earlier hey the budget was small and we could talk a little bit about that but in 2013 hollywood was still very very risk averse right that if you think about 2008 in hollywood that was kind of big budget Hollywood pre-financial crisis and like if you look at the domestic box office in 2008 and you look at the movies Dark Knight Iron Man Indiana Jones Hancock Wally Kung Fu Panda Madagascar Twilight James Bond Quantum of Solace there were some big movies and after the financial crisis I think the industry tightened up in a lot of ways and I think they became very very project risk averse so it's surprising that this got made but it also got made at a time where Formula One was effectively at an all-time low in terms of global popularity in in 2007, 2008, we had Spygate, 
We had Crashgate. We move into the final few years of the V8 era, and Sebastian Vettel's dominating the sport, and interest is dropping off in Western Europe. So it's this interesting time when the box office is in this weird place, Hollywood's in this weird place, but Formula One is as well. And I've always believed that this was very much a... Ron Howard pet project in a lot of ways, a passion project. And maybe you can speak to that, that I think sometimes directors and I think actors take on a lot of work because they're contractually obligated to do it and because they like the art and they like the craft. But I think sometimes they do a project simply because it's a passion of theirs. And I can't help but think that that's one of the reasons that this movie got made. Yeah, I I think that's true. I mean, I think that it, it the how of it got made. I mean, it starts with Ron Howard for sure, who, you know, arguably is on the top five most important filmmakers, maybe of all time, certainly of the last 40 years, um, uh, and had so much juice coming off of so many incredible movies. Um, you know, so there's, there's that part of it. Then you have Peter Morgan, who's the screenwriter who was just coming off of an Oscar for Frost Nixon. So if you're with with Ron Howard, with Ron by the Howard. way, that yeah. was also a Ron Howard Peter Morgan collaboration. Right. And so I think like now Peter Morgan also people might know him better. He's the creator of The Crown on Netflix. So and and he had, he had done The Queen. He he he. Um, I think he had a movie called um, A Special Relationship. Like he his career has been specializing in these like true story English character movies and i think like it, it it's 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 an easy pitch i think to say hey we're going to take the guy who's a master of these like nuanced interpersonal dynamics between two challenging personalities and two hyper intelligent personalities but we're going to add like race cars you know like i think that's a pretty easy pitch um and then you have chris hemsworth who's thor you know like this is just after the avengers so like that's a pretty intriguing package i, do, I i'm sh- i'm sure you're right that it's like it's still a it's still a huge I think risk for these studios and um, I mean I know we're going to talk a little more about the financials here but the way this movie was rolled out clearly indicates that they were very nervous about it and I think we're proven right. A couple of notes real quick just on the Peter Morgan piece I thought was really interesting and I'm reading here I'm quoting from Amazon and I discovered by the way Amazon Prime if you have Amazon Prime Video you can jump on and watch this film in Canada in the U S but a couple of interesting tidbits I learned from Amazon. One, Peter Morgan, quote-unquote, wrote the script of Rush, quote-unquote, on spec or speculation, meaning there was no one waiting to buy it. So when he wrote the first draft, he did so assuming there might not even be any racing sequences or sequences in it at all because the prospective film would probably have been so low budget they couldn't have afforded to have the race sequences. If you grow up in England, that's how you think, he said. Instead, he structured the film as a race of sorts between the two main characters. And then the other really interesting piece that I I learned because of Amazon was originally Paul Greengrass was on board as the director in the development stage for Rush. Greengrass, though, would eventually swap feature film projects with Ron Howard, who was actually set to direct Captain Phillips during its development stage at that time. Greengrass came on to helm Captain Phillips instead as Howard went on to board or went on board to helm Rush in replacement of Greengrass. So I didn't know either of that and only learned it because of some information that Amazon was feeding me as I was watching this film. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, the 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 budget thing. I think. I mean, is it cool if we if I talk about these numbers now? The, the, yeah, let's jump okay, in. Okay, of so, course, so of the course. budget for this is estimated at thirty eight million dollars, which even twenty thirteen I think is like for a big actiony kind of thing is 
it's kind of in no man's land, you know, like, um, you could, you'd make a comedy for like 15, 20 million. You'd make like an action here, you know, a, a superhero movie for, for, uh, in the hundreds of millions, um, 38 million is kind of like a weird place. And like I said, I think that kind of shows in, in a lot of the, the, the filmmaking. Um, okay. So I saw that it's opening weekend was only $187,000. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. So dug into that a little more. And it turns out that, so universal was hired to distribute the movie. They only put it on five screens in the opening weekend. And it had, it had gotten like a good Toronto film festival premiere, but it hadn't, it, it didn't even premiere number one in the UK. And I think they would like, they had all these little tests to try to like build the buzz that they felt they needed for an American audience. So it didn't premiere, you know, number one in the UK. That's a problem. Then they roll it out on, you know, five, literally five screens, uh, opening weekend, uh, the screens average like over $50,000 a screen, which is good. Um, but then the second weekend, you know, it's, I think it made 13 million. It ends up making just under 27 million lifetime for Canada and the U S combined. Um, and then worldwide lifetime is 96 million. So for a $38 million movie to make 96 million, you're, you're probably spending another 20 to 40 million publicizing it. Um, that's not great. So I don't, you can't really call it a, like a, a smash hit. It's like it made its money back. It did fine, you know. Um, but it's like it's not like in prime DVD era where everyone's like cleaning up off DVD residuals or rentals or anything like that. So um, everybody involved in this seemed to know from the jump, like, yeah, cars and Americans, um, like, un uh, unless it's like a, a a nascar -y thing or like a Dukes of Hazzard-y kind of thing or Fast and the Furious and it's like that kind of racing, um, this feels obscure. I mean, just look at like, we, I think we, we maybe talked about this once on the pod, but like, uh, you know, in Talladega Nights, look how the Formula One driver is portrayed. You know, it's like Sacha Baron Cohen and he's like the effete Frenchman, whatever. Like, that's really, if, if anybody knew anything about Formula One, it was kind of that. So this was like really trying to like do a lot of work to go against it and, you know, I think it, it proved it didn't exactly knock it out of the park. You make a really great point about the financials. And to contextualize this a little bit, if you went back to the 90s and the 2000s, Hollywood kind of had two shots, two financial shots with every movie. You got you got to have that theatrical run, that exclusive window in theater because there's no streaming. And then three or four months later, you got to drop it on DVD and Blu-ray. And oftentimes, oftentimes a, a film would really struggle theatrically, but it would clean up on DVD and clean up on Blu-ray. And Anchorman's a perfect example of that, that it didn't do super well. Napoleon Dynamite as well didn't do super well theatrically, but had a huge, hugely successful run on DVD. By the time this film got made, we were already on the cusp of the streaming era. So that second opportunity to clean up was was not there. So you're right that when you consider the worldwide gross of $95 million and a filmmaking budget of $38 million, plus the tens of millions of dollars they probably spent on marketing, it was probably a break-even proposition. And as you were talking this, this occurred to me that this film was just released at the wrong time, that if a Chris Hemsworth-led Formula One biopic was released in 2021 or 2022, obviously the cost to produce it would be higher because of inflation and things like that. But it could be, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I feel like if this film was released in 2021 instead of 20, or 2013, it probably could have been a bit of a smash. Totally, but I think also we're going to find out because 
the Brad Pitt movie is coming. I mean, yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I don't know sure. a ton about that project. I mean, I don't know a ton about it. I know like the basic log line and I know a couple of the, the, the people involved. So, so if you haven't heard about this, Brad Pitt is going to be starring in a formula one movie directed by, I believe the director of Top Gun Maverick. Um, and I think the basic storyline is like retired F1 driver has to, you know, get dragged out of retirement for one more, one more hurrah, kind of a, you know, bank heist style, um, you know, storyline. But, um, you know, I, I think that movie is going to be off the charts great because the one thing that they nailed in Top Gun Maverick was the experience of being in a fighter jet. And I think that while the photography in Rush is undeniably great, um, I mean, that shot of Nikki Lauda walking up to Paul Ricard and the, and you see Paul, you know, and, and the, the grandstands and like, oh, beautiful. And the camera that they put in the helmet looking at the eye, like unbelievable photography in this movie, they are going to blow that out of the water. Like a lot of that stuff I think actually probably looked even better to people in 2013. Now that we've kind of had Drive to Survive, we've got a lot of these kinds of cameras, you know, from from Liberty now and, and um, Sky. Like, uh, you know, I think, so I think that movie's going to look incredible. I also think like maybe one of the biggest sins of Rush is the sound design was bad. I actually watched it this time. I was like, oh, I got to watch with my headphones on. I bet you the sound is sick. And it's kind of boring, the sound. I, this Brad Pitt movie, it's going to be crazy off the charts. And I really think they're, they're going to, they're, the fact that they're not going to be hampered by having to hit real plot points with real characters is going to open them up to write a much more compelling movie narrative, even if the real life narrative from 76 was so great. Uh, I think that movie's going to be, I mean, calling it now, lights out, off the charts, a smash. What you've described, by the way, and I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there was a indie car, well, I guess it was more of a champ car cart movie that was released in 2001 called Driven, starring Sylvester Stallone. And the plot was identical or is identical to the upcoming Brad Pitt movie. At the time, a 53-year-old Sylvester Stallone was convinced to come out of retirement to drive aside a, a young rookie and, and help acclimatize him to the world of high-stakes IndyCar racing. So it's going to be interesting to see a now 59-year-old Brad Pitt put on the helmet and sit in a Formula One car. But again, I, just from the technical side of that alone, I, I look forward to that. Just in, And by the way, I was really excited about this film because having watched it a few times now, my initial impression was the balance of the film was probably shot on a conventional film-based camera. You made that comment earlier about the fact that it was very grainy. And I also picked up on a soft... It's not that it was out of focus because I think there's a difference between being out of focus and 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 being soft and it seemed very it seemed very film like to me and i did a little digging and it turns out the entire film uh, the entire film and the intermediary process was digital so they used the Ari Alexa camera they used the Alexa Studio camera a Canon EOS 1D Mark IV they used the EOS C300 from Canon as a cinema camera GoPro HD Hero 3 camera so a lot of the cameras that were hanging off the body were off the shelf go like GoPro HD Hero 3 cameras like old 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 third generation GoPros i think that one 
one phenomenal shot that you mentioned in the camera. So that shot in the end where it's that shot inside the camera and you're an inch away from the driver's eyes as they're drilling through the visor to make sure that there's airflow to provide the, prevent the humidity from building up on the inside of the visor. That, that was a phenomenal scene and it was just beautiful cinematography. Um, they used an indie GS2K camera, um, a Phantom Flex camera, a Red Epic, and then a whole bunch of Zeiss and Ari lenses um, to kind of put this together. But a lot of this is now fairly antiquated technology. It was good at the time, but a lot of this is stuff that you could pick up now on Craigslist. And I think at the time, digital filmmaking at the level of an Ari or a Red Epic was pretty next level. So clearly invested in this. And again, I think one of the reasons they were able to manage that budget is you weren't processing a ton of film negatives, but all of this is antiquated stuff now. And I think the film would have a very different look and feel with modern technology. But I think they did a really good job of creating the illusion that it was the 1970s. And I think sometimes I, I take exception to a lot of the stuff that we see pop up on on Netflix and Prime and Disney Plus now, especially period stuff that's shot digitally and is over sharp. That when I sit in and I watch this ultra HD, HDR filmed 4K footage of a 1970s period piece and it's too sharp and the depth of field is too, too smooth, like to me it takes takes it out of the element. This film feels like it was actually filmed in the 1970s. So I think in terms of the visual feel, the visual experience, I think it was next level. And like you, I did two tests. I listened to the film on my headphones because I was expecting some really impactful, beautiful stereo separation and a great score. And it didn't come across as great. And I also watched it on my Dolby Atmos setup and it was equally disappointing. So in terms of sound design and creating that sound separation on that surround field stage, it wasn't great. So I think it's beautiful. It looks fantastic, but I think the sound was a, a real letdown for me as well. Just to go back to the look, um, I was revisiting the race weekend issue on the 1970s and flipping through that magazine, you get the same vibe, right? From this like beautiful photography. And I was like, oh yeah, they they totally nailed it in the movie because it's coming through so so clearly in these photographs. And um, I think actually the production design in general was really fantastic. Y you know, um, um, they, they shot every, they shot all the racing at the same track. And then they just, and then they just redid like the bunting and the grandstands and like the, you know, what uh, the, the background uh, actors and what they were wearing and stuff. And like to pull that off and like, make them look like the number of unique racetracks they did. I thought the production design in general was actually fantastic. To the casual viewer and probably even an experienced viewer, that's probably not something they would even pick up on, but it was actually it was actually Brands Hatch in the UK. And I think one of the reasons they were able to keep this budget down is because they weren't global they weren't globe trotting from track to track to track and Brands Hatch doesn't get the usage that Silverstone did. But you're right that really the on-track action was effectively the same track, but they dressed up, they dressed up the main straight to give the illusion that they were in Japan or that they were at Monza or that they were at Hot or Nürburgring or all these other kind of places. And I think they did a phenomenal job. And there is a making of documentary that's available on the Blu-ray and is actually also on, on YouTube that gives a little bit of insight into into how they did that, but it was a really, really effective, uh, very effective mechanism for creating the illusion that there were tracks that they certainly were at, and in some cases at tracks that no longer exist as well. I feel like this is a good segue to talk about just like Formula One in the 70s um, yeah. and what comes off Be this movie. 
Before yeah. we do that, let's take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll jump right back into it. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Right before we cut to the break, Seth was about to jump into our next topic, which is, I think, the one I'm really excited to talk about, as if I wasn't excited enough to talk about the budget and how the film was made and whether it was a good movie. But Seth, I'm going to kick it over to you. We wrote down in our notes, we wanted to talk about what we learned about Formula One in the 1970s. Yeah, and I feel like I've been a little down on the, on the movie so far. I do want to, I do want to say... We will talk about highlights and things we loved. Especially, I've got I've got a handful of uh, moments from the movie that I think are just like killer, great, great uh, movie moments. But I do think like the overall thing I love the most about the movie is the world and just diving into this world and the sport at this time. It's like you really do like smell the motor oil and the fumes and like you know. I think part of the reason I was disappointed by the sound design is like I want to hear those screaming engines just like shattering your eardrums. That's what that feels like you know, right from the 70s. I, I realized that actually like a, the, some of the things I'm most interested in are actually questions that I have for you. So I'll kind of talk about these things and then you can you can fill me in if you have any part of it. One thing I thought was interesting was like, um, well, I, I just like some of the nerdy like F1 differences, one of which being appeared to be no formation lap. Like I can understand why you might just cut that out, but um, I did look it up, and the formation lap I don't think came into existence until '78, maybe, or it was it was after this though. So that's really interesting to me that they're starting the race on cold tires. So that's 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 one thought thing I thought was interesting. You know, I'm sure it was a part of Elizabeth Blacksack article in the in Race Weekend. It does a nice job of talking about how this was a time when. Um, a lot of the safety stuff was was changing. Obviously, you get that with Nikki Lauda, and you get you see the pushback from the other drivers on that too. The other thing I, I just do not understand is like why were the pit stops so casual? And 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 was that and was that accurate in the movie? Is it is it because they're also fueling the car, and so there's like no need to like rush the tires um, because it just seemed like they weren't even out there ready to go. You know, like so. so I thought that was interesting. And then the last question I had was about. Um, the Nuremberg ring, which when Lauda says he's got the record, I'm pretty sure he says it's like a seven-minute lap, and um, uh, that it was like I forget how long was it. It, it was like 14 miles. Or, it was like a, a huge thing, and I've heard about like the outer ring at the Nuremberg ring, the inner ring, but I've not looked this up. So you can be my my Google and uh, help me understand. Like, were there races in the 70s where 
it was like uh, only a handful of laps and the laps were super, super yeah, long. So let me bring that up real quick. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a quick deep dive into Wikipedia because yeah, I think you're right that they were running. So that would have been in 1976. And by the way, I did take note of this. 1976 was actually the last year they run the, ran the German Grand Prix on the North Loop of the Nürburgring. And I think they had recognized even by 1970 standards that the Nor Nürburgring was just, especially the North Loop was just too, too disastrous. But yeah, to, so to give you a little bit of context, the 1976 German Grand Prix was run on the North Loop of the Nürburgring. They ran 14 laps, which was the equivalent of 320 kilometers. The fastest lap in 1976 was by Jody Schechter, who was running the six-wheel uh, Terrell Ford. And that time was seven minutes 10 seconds, seven minutes and just shy of seven minutes, seven minutes and 11 seconds for a lap, for a lap. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I think it was, it had been earlier in the seventies, right? That the drivers boycotted the, the Nürburgring or, the, or a number of the, a number of them wouldn't do it because it was just too crazy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it, and talk to me about, about the, the pit stops. What's going on in the, in the pit stops there? Yeah. So I think you make a really great point. And I picked up on that a little bit as well. Like there was that scene during the final race in, in Japan. And again, there's going to be a lot of spoilers. So if you don't know the 76 season, go check it out, do the deep dive on Wikipedia. And if you haven't watched the movie, go and watch the movie now. But there's that scene during the Japanese Grand Prix where one of the engineers leans into James Hunt and has a casual, like five minute conversation with him in the pit. And they're debate basically debating the merits about whether he should go out and push hard to try to take third place and they're like they're having this casual conversation and i think that i think there's a couple of reasons for that one the tools certainly weren't well one i think the crews weren't as big certainly not nearly as big as they are today the tools certainly weren't as sophisticated so they were much 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 more manual and they were also absolutely refueling so i think where today it is so i'm trying to think of the right word it's so um, mechanized in terms of the tools and the machinery. It's so well choreographed and there's so many people contributing. And again, we also don't have a refuel and the refuel was taken out. I think 2010 was the last year we did refueling. It was removed for 2011 again because of the safety thing. But yeah, again, that was just a part of a part of the experience is that you had these ultra long pit stops. So today where we we debate that a four second pit stop is, is a bad pit stop, that's unfathomably fast versus what we would have seen even in the 80s and even in the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. I, I, um, the, the whole mechanics job back then seemed like a whole other Megillah. I mean, it was so much more tactile. I, I, I actually was even at one point wondering about like the radio communication then. And then like you do see mechanics with like microphones, like a, a strapped to the helmet. What was the, what was the communication system like for that? I mean, to the driver, to be totally honest, yeah. and I'm going to have to deep dive this myself. I'm I'm not actually sure whether they had communication with the drivers at all because I think you saw that scene at the end in the Japanese Grand Prix where James Hunt comes in and doesn't realize that he actually finished third until he takes off his his helmet and he's approached by one of the team principals. So my assumption is there was little or no direct to driver communication, but uh, I would have to I would have to verify that or maybe there was on a team by team basis, but certainly not broadly available even at the Formula One level. Just a, a couple of other things real quick. Um, that I wanted to pick up on just before we forget them. So much smoking. So much. Oh my gosh. There, there isn't a scene where at least nine different people weren't smoking and the alcohol was 
everywhere. There's scenes where there's scenes where James Hunt in Formula Two or Formula Three is taking a swig of of champagne that's handed to him by the team owner, uh, Sir. Um, what was the team name? Why am I forgetting it right now? Hesketh. Hesketh. Mr. Lord Hesketh is handing him alcohol to kind of calm his nerves before he jumps into the car. There's alcohol in the garages. There's alcohol in the caravans. It's just everywhere. And then the other observation that I had, and I'm so glad you brought this up, is that I think this is also possibly a failing of the film in that the women that were here were paraded around, like you said, almost purely as set pieces, and they were almost inconsequential to the story. And I say that with respect to James Hunt's wife, and of course he ended up getting divorced, but also with Nikki Lauda's wife. But I think the the rest of the film is they did do a really good job of demonstrating that the role that women probably played in motorsport, that they were there to be an executive assistant, they were there to be a secretary, and they were there to be paraded around the track. And by modern conventional standards, those are all wildly inappropriate things that we want to we want to promote and drive inclusivity and break down those horrible gender barriers. But I think in that sense, it did a really good job of demonstrating, hey, what was what role did women play in motorsports in the 1970s? Then it was it was a pretty icky existence for those poor individuals but i was pretty disappointed and again this is probably the constraint of a two-hour running time is that we didn't get to unpack more about the relationship of james and his wife and nikki and his wife and the role that they had on on their existence and the decisions that they made as formula one racing drivers and then the other one too and i don't know if you picked up on this but there's so much racism from the brits towards the germans and and i get that this film was taking place just 30 years after World War II, but there was so much verbiage and so much terminology thrown. To, and again, it's probably period accurate that that's probably how they were acting. But just in terms of capturing the, the experience of being in the 1970s, there was certainly a lot of certainly a lot of racism. And even though Nicky Lauda, of course, is Austrian, he just gets characterized as a German and they they throw ra- subtle, not, not even so subtle, but racism towards him. Him with their comments and, and their verbiage. And then, of course, calling him a rat constantly was also a little bit disheartening. But that itself is, I think, pretty factual and something that's been discussed pretty extensively. Yeah, and he didn't seem to care about that. Can you call it racism when it's when it's one white person? I think there'd be xenophobia. Um, yes, yes, yes. I would actually, yeah. I think it would be great if uh, this movie had the opportunity to demonstrate racism, but I don't think there's a black person in the movie. <laughs> there's like, there's there's some Japanese people when you get to... Uh, the Japanese, the, Grand, the Japanese Prix, Grand Prix, and that's about and it. that's about it. Um, that's another yeah. thing you would obviously, you know, never do now um, even, yeah. Even so thank you, piece. by the way, thank you for course correcting me. <laughs> oh, good. Totally the wrong, <laughs> totally the wrong terminology, but I, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that was an, another takeaway I had, but I kind of buried it is, and again, it's probably period accurate that we, we argue today that there isn't enough inclusivity and diversity in formula one, 1970s, 1976, there was zero. And like I said, if there was a woman in the grid, it's because she was being, the poor thing was being paraded out to stand on the grid next to a car or to play the role of a secretary. You and Daly have talked about, you know, the grid girls, which I've, I've actually never seen. I've only heard about as a thing. I think that, so Hesketh, who was responsible for this, like... This is another thing the movie doesn't get it, get really into. 76 is also the year that it, the the sport kind of, like, becomes really internationally famous. And they reference that, like, there's a TV deal for the Japanese Grand Prix, and, you know, that that 
that that's why they wouldn't cancel and but like to me that's like another huge aspect of why this season was so important that they just don't really get into at all but it's like this was the first like big bump you know in in international awareness of the sport but anyway Hesketh I think is turning like the pit lane into this like giant party with girls everywhere and I think that's where Ecclestone got the idea of like oh yeah this is good to have around and will especially be helpful when there's TV cameras yeah I think that's also a really great point and and certainly not something I picked up on but and let's give credit where credit is due and I don't give Bertie credit very often because he's a deeply flawed human being but ultimately he's the one that brought formula one into the economic stratosphere and he did so because he recognized the potential of formula one as a global tv product and by 1976 you were absolutely starting to see that manifest and the japanese grand prix which historically would never have been seen outside of being physically present at the track was broadcast globally and it was available in the uk germany france the united states australia um and in most i think countries that would identify as Western liberal democracies at at that point. But I think that's another great kind of reinforcement that money was important to Formula One, even in 1976. And that despite the fact that the Japanese Grand Prix uh, posed serious health risks and serious health hazards to the drivers, and despite what had happened at the German Grand Prix in the same season, and despite the fact that there'd been death and destruction in season, they still weren't willing to cancel the Japanese Grand Prix because they had a contract to broadcast it globally. And it was worth significant money that ultimately trickled down to the drivers and the teams. Um, I don't think I'm putting you on the spot with this question, um, but uh, there are clearly some really interesting technical things going on in the sport in the 70s. Like you referenced the car that had six wheels. I think there was like, um, wasn't there also a car that uh, Lauda drove a couple years later that had a fan in the back? That like yeah, blew it yeah. down. That like created downforce, but <laughs> that they banned basically immediately. Um, but but could you could you talk a little bit about what some of like the big thing like what would be the I mean obviously the cars look different, but let's sort of like technically what's going on that's different that you know either that we can't see or that we would just be intrigued to know that's that's so radically different from the cars we see today. I'm I'm actually really glad you brought up the Trail P34. So it makes a cameo in the German Grand Prix, and I think it appears a couple of other times later in the film. But I, I think to provide a little bit of understanding of Formula One in the 50s, in the 60s, and the 70s, it was much closer to a prototype series than it is today, meaning that individual teams had massively more liberty in designing their cars than they do now. For instance, the, the regulations today dictate the displacement of your engine, the cylinders of your engine, the type of forced induction, the size of your re, the rims, where you're going to buy all these different parts from. In the 1970s, it's just like, have at her. Buy a car from a competitor, build a car from the ground up, stick in a V6, V8, V10, V12, have adder. And it le led to some wild, wild variation. And the reason the Terrell P34 is, is relevant, and I'm just going to read this quote from Amazon Prime, the blue six-wheeled 
The blue six-wheeled Formula One car is a Terrell P34. Its design had several technical advantages, and Jody Schechter did win once in the car in 1976, but it eventually became uncompetitive due to the weight of its complex front suspension, problems with understeer, and Goodyear's inability to continue the development of its unique 10-inch tires. The Terrell team raced the P34 in 76 and 77, and I think that's just a perfect example of the type of innovation that we were seeing was that there was literally a car on the grid with six wheels and if you're not familiar with how it looked they had two full-size wheels at the back but up front they had two sets of t- two sets of two wheels two in the front left corner two in the right corner and they were 10 inches so they were tiny and they were designed to provide as much contact patch and as much grip as possible and you also talk about the fan car the fan car was literally that it used a gigantic fan to suck the car onto the ground to create downforce and I think some of these teams and some of these drivers kind of pushed the FIA a little bit too far and they would often have to step in but there was wild wild variations in the look and the feel of these cars and the sound of the cars and it really wasn't until I guess you get into the late 70s and the early 80s where the FIA and Formula One start kind of creating more common methodologies for for the formula of the cars but yeah wild variations back then but I was so excited that the Terrell P34 made a cameo and of course that was actually so the, the Terrell P34 that you see in the film was actually a Terrell P34 it wasn't a mock-up or anything like that and a couple of other kind of fun notes just about the 1970s that I thought was interesting to kind of put into this um let's take a peek here what's a really really good one because I got so many of them Uh, a couple of goofs that I didn't pick up on but throughout the film throughout the film Mr. Lauda is classified as being of AUS nationality which would suggest he was Australian so when you would see him on the scoreboards newspapers and things like that he was actually Austria not Australian so that was a interesting little tidbit Um, his 1975 championship like you said if you blinked you missed that they, they pay almost no attention to the fact that he is the reigning world champion going into the 1976 season, which I thought was I thought was a little bit crazy. And then another point that I thought was, just to kind of build on that comment you made a couple of minutes ago, the film did a phenomenal job of bringing you close to the visceral mechanical nature of Formula One that, you know... Back in 2001, Universal did this a little bit with the Fast and Furious where they would they, they would do that thing where it was all digital, but they would do this thing where the camera kind of dived into the engine, it went into the combustion chamber, and it was all digital and totally fake. You get up close and personal with the cars in a way that is almost unimaginable, and none of it's digital. It's all real. Like There's a scene where they have a GoPro that is mounted onto an air gun, and they bring the air gun onto the hub of the wheel while it's on their position. And like You just get real real like real close to to the energy and and the reality of those cars and then there's countless shots of the back of the cars where the cars are dropped from the jacks and you can see the rear suspension compressing very very cool the other thing that i learned as well is and i didn't know this is that a lot of the shots of the racing actually featured the actors in the cars and what they had done is because it was simply unsafe to stick both Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brühl in a 1970 era's Formula One car, they took some more contemporary Formula Three cars and dressed them up with the bodywork of a 1970s Formula One car to give the impression that they were driving it. But some very, very, very cool stuff. And that's probably also how they were able to keep the film on budget. I mean, one other car fun fact while we're on here is... Um... 
So Brett Lunger, who was the driver who plows into Lauda after he bursts on fire. Did, did you know this one? So the guy playing Burt Lunger is a, is a British driver named Rob Austin. He got the part because Ron Howard found out that Austin's dad owned the car that Lunger had hit uh, Lauda with. So he goes to meet him to like see about the car, finds out the kid is a driver, and the kid ends up playing longer. Unreal! I had no idea. That's yeah. such that's such a cool story, and what a great what a great story it is to tell your grandkids. A couple a couple of other things, real quick, and, and I'll kick it over to you. Um, I noticed that the races were out of order in the 1976 season. Not that it's really really relevant, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, the 1976 Spanish GP, a McLaren, so in the film, he gets disqualified. McLaren appealed the disqualification, and they don't really, they talk about this a little bit, but McLaren appealed the disqualification in July. The appeal was upheld, and Hunt reinstated as winner of the Spanish Grand Prix, which ultimately led to the disaster of the following races. 1976 British Grand Prix, uh, James Hunt was disqualified and it wasn't initially upheld and it was eventually reinstated as a disqualification so if you look at the standings you'll see that dsq um you mentioned the crash i wrote down that i thought that was captured very very well i i liked the fact that they didn't revisit it in slow motion from 30 or 40 different angles. You kind of saw it as it happened, and I appreciated that. And obviously, it was a budgetary constraints piece, but I appreciated seeing it in real time because it was that much more impactful and emotional to see the crash to see the crash happen the other two cars collide and then you're sitting there in suspense as they're attempting to get him out of the car i thought they captured that scene really well but again given that you're closer to the the business i, I was curious as to how you felt they did that no i felt the same way i mean it's like um uh it did a really nice job of just leaning in like you you know even if you don't know the story of 1976, which I didn't when I was watching it, you get the sense that something is going to happen in this race and you don't really know when. And then he's like in the pit lane and he's like struggling to get behind. But still the crash kind of comes out of nowhere. And I think part of that is they they show you something breaking in the car, in the movie. But I think in real life, they still don't exactly know what happened. Um, but you, I thought they did a great job of just like, yeah, this thing snaps and it goes. And like, this actually ties back to a thing that I think is interesting about the movie and is something that I think is good about the movie and also bad about the movie is, remember in Drive to Survive, in the opening moments of Drive to Survive, the one of the first things they tell you is how dangerous this sport is. And I think this movie does the same thing where it is constantly reminding you that these are life or death stakes. I think the, the good of that is like, Yes, movies need stakes, and you need to remember that that these guys are not they're doing something fun and competitive, but they are they are engaged in a life and death endeavor in life and death endeavor every single time they get in the car. Um, obviously evidenced in that scene. And I think that is a strength of the movie, actually, is that that it it makes those stakes so clear. I think part of the problem with the movie, just to <laughs> go back to this one more time, is that like it's it's in a lot of ways the only stakes of the movie. The movie's really supposed to be about like this Lauda Hunt relationship. I actually kind of wish they didn't even include the wives at all. Just like make it, you know, a quasi love story between these two guys. Like what is going on between the two of them? Because um, I, I feel like I didn't, 
you know, like, I, I didn't care enough about the championship, actually. And I didn't care enough about what happened between them, I think, as as much as the movie wanted me to. Anyway, to tie that all back to the crash, I think part of the reason it was so successful is you just have this sense of, like, Loud is this guy who's doing everything right. He's he's working so hard. That pays off for him so consistently. And here's a moment where he is just, it doesn't matter how hard he wants to push. It doesn't matter how, you know, much he wants to... Um, wants to win the thing. He goes into the pit and the pit stops slow. He drives as hard as he can and the car breaks. Like, those things are out of his control. I think that speaks to something that's, like, crushingly honest about the sport. And I think that, like, you know, I'd be curious if if in their, like, most honest moments, all these drivers, what they would say about the fairness of the sport, you know? Because there is just something, like, you know, you can be just cruising on your way to a championship and then, like, a lap back, Nicholas Latifi can have a weird crash and all of a sudden the rest of your life has changed in, in a weird way, you know? Um, just so true of this moment. It's just like, he's just a guy who's doing his job and he's pushing hard and the car breaks and then the seatbelt's hard to get out of, you know, because it's, again, the 70s and you need like six people to do it. Um, I thought all of that was so real and visceral and you can just like, I mean, it's like the Roman Grosjean crash. Like, you just feel the time so intensely. And I think to your point, if you go into slow motion or you start showing a replay, what it does is it it robs you of a true emotional connection to the amount of time that is passing during this accident. You know, it's a little, it's interesting. It's a little bit like in comedy sometimes you don't want to put a cut in the film in between like a, a a joke or like in the middle of a joke or in the middle of a comedic sequence because it'll it'll it it ruins the pacing of it it ruins that release of tension and i think here you have so much tension building clearly you're cutting between cameras but i think if you like the second you go back into slow motion and replay or this or that the other thing or you you cut to a bunch of other people's reactions you know and, and you're you're giving the audience actually an opportunity to like release that tension and you know i totally agree with you i think it was just building 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 in such a incredible way here. on that note and just because i missed this earlier but uh you're talking about death and destruction in formula one and i agree by the way that it's weird that nikki lauda there's some narration at the end of the film and it's also equally weird that you get a little bit of nikki narration at the beginning and a little bit of of, of james hunt narration but the film opens with with this quote from Nikki Lauda, 25 drivers start every season in Formula One and each year two of us die. What kind of a person does a job like this? Rebels, lunatics, dreamers, people are who are desperate to make a mark and are willing to die trying. And then later in the film, there's that scene at the German Grand Prix uh, where there is a driver's meeting that he calls to talk about the safety of the race and he's trying to convince people to, to cancel the race because of danger. And of course, that's ultimately where he had that crash that you were just describing. But he says, I accept that every time I get in my car, there's a 20% chance I can die, but not 1% more. Um, and of course, the German Grand Prix exceeded the threshold that he was comfortable with. And there's also that scene where James Hunt was talking to his future wife, uh, but he refers to the car as, it's just a a little coffin isn't it for all intents and purposes it's a bomb on wheels and i think one of the other takeaways that i have from this film especially being in the 1970s is everyone's very cognizant of how dangerous these cars are like nikki lauda is saying that he's saying there's 25 drivers every year and two of us are gonna die like we know there's a, a real world chance that i will not survive this season yet they still get in the cars and yet 
the tracks themselves are death traps. And, and you look at them, like today we have these huge runoff areas and we have gravel traps and we have huge catch fences. There are people literally standing on, on, the, on the curbs. There are people on the track. There are no catch fences at any given time. A car could spin off and plow directly into a crowd of spectators. So they all recognized and appreciated the dangers, but at the same time, weren't really willing to do anything. And I get it that safety technology in the cars may not have been there, but there was so little that was done. And there was a scene in the film where, and again, we have tethers today. So wheels, it's much more difficult for a wheel to break free of a car, but it bounces and just through a parking lot before smashing the windshield of a pickup truck and there's just people scattering everywhere. If that wheel had hit any one of those people, they would have been killed instantly. So it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, we get it. It was dangerous and the cars were unsafe, but they did nothing to protect the safe, to, to protect the safety and the integrity of the people that were, that were at the track. And I think that, you know, Nikki makes a real statement at the end of this film because he pulls into the pit in the Japanese Grand Prix and he's leading the championship at that moment because I think James Hunt was in fourth or fifth place at that moment. But he makes this incredible statement that as the world champion, he is willing to retire from a race due to safety. That he 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 is in the he is in the midst of retaining his world championship, and he says enough is enough. As a world champion, this is unsafe. And he parks his car and he gets out. And his team's like, "Hey, do you want us to tell the media it was a mechanical issue?" And he's like, "No." It's like it was a safety issue. And I thought that was an incredibly powerful statement that amongst all of the death and the destruction that was Formula One in the 1970s, you have a world champion driver that's willing to willing to give up almost probably not a sure thing, but is willing to give up a strong probability that he would retain as world champion because he recognized that it was just unsafe to be driving in the Japanese Grand Prix in 1976. Yeah. I mean, I love those lines that you called the, uh, it's just a little coffin. Really. I love that so much bomb on wheels. The, um, a, a lot of this is also reminding me, um, of the Jackie Stewart interview, on uh, Beyond the Grid, which people should look up, um, recent uh, recent interview, uh, where he's not only talking about the danger of the sport in the 70s, but he also talks about sort of like how dispassionately he approached the, that danger. And I think it really speaks to the mentality of, the unique mentality of someone who can get in one of these cars and do this thing. Um, it's such a rare human who can repress emotions <laughs> to the degree that they needed to, especially in this era, to be able to essentially watch someone die and then keep going, um, see someone die, see a car, you know, just torn to shreds, and then like green light, green flag, we're back out, we're, we're going. I, he actually, and, and Tom Clarkson, I think in that interview, keeps pressing him on kind of like trying to plumb the emotions. And Jackie Stewart, I don't think he's avoiding the question. I think he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's very honestly reporting back like it was nothing. We didn't even think about it. it, it there was, you know, the, the degree of like repression involved, um, or maybe it's not repression, I don't know, maybe it's just like a total like zen understanding of what the endeavor was and an acceptance of it um, and a total willingness to die for it. Um, I mean, granted, like what I do for a living, you know, <laughs> doesn't necessarily have the exact same like financial upside as what they did 
but I love what I do just as much as what they did. The idea of if someone could be like, okay, you're going to write this script, but there's a 20% chance you might die when you hit, when you get to the end, I'd be like, no, get me out of here. I will go work at Home Depot. Um, like, so I, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the, these, these men as characters. And, and I do think that, um, a strength of the movie is the, the way that Lauda especially was portrayed. I, I mean, a lot of that's on Daniel Bruhl, just an unbelievable actor, but you know, you hear Nicky Lauda talk and, he, and he's that guy, you know? Um, and I think that, that portraying that sort of like cold, calculating, almost mechanistic mentality, um, is one of the strengths of the movie. We should also mention as well, starring Daniel Bruhl, Chris Hemsworth, Olivia Wilde, and Alexandria Marie Laura. My friend, any any other thoughts, any other considerations, any tidbits of information you'd like to share before we, we wrap up this episode? Well, I just want to say there was a couple, I want to, I do want to say a couple moments I really, really liked. And then, and then I do have one like little Easter eggy fun fact. The, um, I think my favorite, well, I love a work montage uh, as a fellow, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> as a fellow, with the yeah, yes, yeah. as a fellow, a, a type, um, anal retentive, um, process work lover. Uh, I love the work montage in this, but I also love how the power dynamic um, for Lauda changes with, I think it, it's BRM is, is, is the first team uh, um, where he goes out, he tweaks the setup on his car and, and he doesn't drive it. He says, put clay in it. He's going to be two seconds faster. And they're all kind of treating him like, oh, whatever, you know, you bought your way into this. You, you got a loan, whatever. The second he has those two seconds, and he can get those two seconds, the power dynamic shifts so rapidly and suddenly he has all the status and all the power. I thought that was so incredible. I love that moment. I also love the moment when Hesketh has to call and tell him that he's like financially ruined. <laughs> um, I thought that was just like, we've, we've all had that moment where we just like get out a little too far over our skis and we're like, yeah, uh, we, we have to return this. <laughs> um, so I thought that was great. Um, also, uh, one writing thing that I thought was really great, and this is just a small little subtle thing, is that the first time Nikki meets um, Marlene and she's, you know, the car breaks down and, um, uh, you know, they get the ride and she finds out he's a Formula One driver. She's like, no, that doesn't make sense. Formula One drivers are like handsome and they party and they're playboy. She describes James Hunt. <laughs> Um, I thought that was like, it, it, he doesn't call it out, but like, I thought that was such a like subtle little thing. Um, here's a couple lines from the movie that, that you haven't mentioned that I thought were really, really great. If happiness is the enemy you've already lost, I thought it was like, mwah, chef's kiss. Um, uh, another, I think it's from the same scene. Also, I think from Marlene is, uh, uh, you are who you are at this point in your life. God bless anyone who asks for more. I thought that like, she could see in him just like such an honest you know, and, and I think there's an interesting permission structure that she's sort of signing off there. Um, and then, ba, 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 ba. okay, so then the last, uh, two, two other tiny things. Um, the reporter who's trackside, talking to camera, bald guy, long sideburns. He's, he's in there a few times. Do you know who that's supposed to be? Who? That's Sterling Moss. What? And the only so the only reason I know this is I was I I was going to IMDb because I wanted to look up who the um, DP was of the movie and then they're on the cat I love that character actor he's in a ton of British stuff um, he is supposed to be Sterling Moss which I guess would be for ABC's Wide World of Sports 
which I think Jackie Stewart also worked for. Um, he talks about in that interview. So anyway, totally random. They never call it out, but like cool to be Sterling Moss versus like Lauda's mechanic, which was also like a credit in there. And then the last thing I want to point out just as like a, a, a go check it out for yourself. So this came out after Game of Thrones season two, which is the first time that you hear the song, The Reigns of Castamir. Half your audience might be totally tuned out right now, but um, li- go listen to Reigns of Castamere and then listen to the theme from Rush, um, which I believe is called Lost But One. Um, I It really sounds like Hans Zimmer ripped off Game of Thrones. Uh, that's my last fun Easter egg nugget to check out. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I cannot thank you enough. This was fantastic. You are always, you are always much applauded for joining our show and you get a ton of great press and a ton of positive feedback. So for all of you listening at home, thank you. We commit to doing this again. There's some really great F1 documentaries we would love to dive into over the course of the next few months and years. Of course, as uh, as Seth also mentioned, there's an upcoming Brad Pitt fictional Formula One movie that I believe is going to star a number of different F1 drivers that will be very cool to check out. And maybe, maybe we come back together later this summer. If you haven't, you should, Seth, check out the 2001 Sylvester Stallone flick, Driven. Have you seen that? <laughs> I haven't. I remember what you're talking about that now, though. It's terrible. It's really, really terrible, but <laughs> but it's also very enjoyable, and I appreciate the fact that any movie studio was willing to make a movie about uh, Champ Car at a period where that series was in dire financial stress. My friend, any final words before we before we sign off today? It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is the best. Thank you so much. To everybody listening at home, if you like what we do, if you like what you hear, please give us a rating on Spotify. If you listen to us on Apple, if you can give us a rating and a review, it would be much appreciated as always. Thanks again. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this down you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like Songum and my songs gon' break through like a running back.